Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump in New Hampshire after securing a key win in Iowa. How's the next primary race looking? And could Nikki Haley surge ahead? Iris Tower reports. Senator Ted Cruz endorses Trump for president. And Vivek Ramaswamy has a big ask from Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. The Senate reaches a short-term funding fix and President Biden invites top lawmakers to discuss the border and other matters as the recent drowning deaths of three migrants weighs heavy in the air. The U.S. sends a top official to Qatar to discuss a possible hostage release and more on the expected move to put Iran-backed Houthis back on the list of foreign terrorist organizations. In the tech world, OpenAI is looking to address bias in artificial intelligence and a judge blocks a merger between Spirit Airlines and JetBlue. We get the updates from the host of Entity Business. Record-setting Arctic cold will continue today for many parts of the country. We take a look at how both man and beast are coping. Are the cold, dry winter wreaking havoc on your skin? We have some tips to help to keep your skin glowing this winter. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Wednesday, January 17th. Yep, middle of the week, and Haley's really got her work cut out for her in New Hampshire to close that 13-point gap between her right. and Trump. And the New Hampshire governor has already said Haley's going to visit a lot of towns, retail stores, and that's unlike Trump. Yeah. Well, in today's top news, former President Trump yesterday toggling between the courtroom and the campaign trial after securing a key victory in Iowa. His competitors now vying for another shot in New Hampshire. And today's White House correspondent Iris Tao has the latest on Trump's campaign. Just one day after winning by a historic margin here in Iowa, former President Trump is already campaigning in New Hampshire. The largest margin of victory in GOP history. Is that good? If you think that it was easy to get here tonight, you are wrong. That was... He's there after spending most of the day at a courtroom in New York, where a jury there will decide whether he has to pay former magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll for defamation over denying her allegations about sexual harassment. Trump has denied any wrongdoing in that case and has went on to say that he doesn't even know who Carol is. Trump went on a posting spree on True Social on Tuesday saying this is another witch hunt. That's especially as it comes right after the Iowa caucus on Monday and right before the New Hampshire primary set for next Tuesday. Meanwhile, in New Hampshire, recent polling has shown that Nikki Haley has been eating into Trump's lead there. But Trump won by over 50 percent of support here in Iowa on Monday, leading both Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley by over 30 points. So another potential key victory in New Hampshire could really help Trump here by knocking out the competition, which could help explain why Trump is campaigning New Hampshire for the rest of the week. Meanwhile, his competitors are not letting up either. Here's what they were saying on Tuesday. Watch. If Donald Trump is the nominee, the election will revolve around all these legal issues, his trials. Uh, we're going to lose if that's the decision that voters are making. I'm going after Trump. We can't go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. Meanwhile, Vivek Ramaswamy, who dropped out of the race on Monday after the Iowa caucus and went on to endorse Trump, appeared with Trump at Trump's rally in New Hampshire on Tuesday. And I told him that I would endorse Donald J. Trump for president of the United States and do everything in my power to lead us to victory in this war. He has a big, beautiful, bright future ahead. Ramaswamy originally planned a lot of events for himself in New Hampshire, but these events are all gone now on his website after he dropped out. Back to you. Senator Ted Cruz officially endorsed former President Trump last night. The move comes after the former president's dominant victory at the Iowa caucuses. 
Cruz wrote on X that he's proud to endorse Trump for president. The senator from Texas urged people to unite against President Biden and what he called the Democrats' agenda while asking for donations. This marks Cruz's third endorsement for, of Trump in the presidential primaries. Former Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is calling on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley to drop their campaigns and unite the party behind Trump. Speaking on Fox News, Ramaswamy stated that stepping aside would be a service to the country and the party. The biotech entrepreneur recently suspended his own campaign and endorsed Trump after a disappointing showing in the Iowa caucuses. And this Thursday's Republican debate in New Hampshire has been called off. ABC News announced they are scrapping the events due to a lack of candidates. Four candidates previously qualified for the debate, former President Trump, Governor Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley and Chris Christie. But then Christie dropped out of the race. Trump said he wouldn't take part in any of the debates and Haley said she wouldn't participate without Trump. Following the Iowa caucuses, Haley said she would only debate Trump or President Biden, not DeSantis. And we have an update on former President Trump's election case. Twitter tried to get permission to let Trump know special counsel Jack Smith was attempting to access his data, so they appealed to the full court. But the federal appeals court said yesterday it won't get involved. Let's unpack this with Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Paul, thanks for coming on today. The cat's out of the bag. President Trump knows that Jack Smith's trying to go after his Twitter data. Why does X need to go around this non-disclosure order? Well, X uh, argued uh, it had a First Amendment right to tell its customer that, hey, uh, the FBI, Jack Smith's coming to get your your data. And what's really amazing about this is that this information was stored with the National Archives. And normally what happens when the government or anybody wants to get information from the National Archives, you apply to the National Archives and the president or the ex-president gets 30 days to challenge that in court because what's clearly important here is executive privilege. And and I'd like to just read a sentence from the uh, dissent in this case. They said, rather than follow established procedure, for the first time in American history, a court allowed access to presidential communications before any scrutiny of executive privilege. This is astounding that here in America, not only do you have uh, uh, prosecutors getting your data, but they're not even following the legal procedure. So, uh, you know, this is really an uh, uh, illegal uh, attempt on the part of, of Jack Smith. Paul, certainly huge ramifications for presidential executive privilege here. The four justice sure. judges, they did not issue a dissent, but they had an opinion. And in that, they were actually pointing out that this may set the precedent where a sitting president could have their records looked up in secret. So what precedent does this set here? Yeah, no, uh, that's exactly right. Uh, the four uh, judges did note that this sets a very dangerous precedent, not only for ex-presidents, but for sitting presidents as well. Uh, can you imagine uh, that uh, any president in office, all of a sudden uh, his, his uh, tweets and uh, phone records are being uh, subpoenaed, uh, uh, or search warrant rather, by, by the prosecutors and they don't know about it? I mean, this is astounding. And, and, and so this does set a dangerous precedent and I'm, I'm really uh, surprised how they did this. And it's amazing because in the January 6th investigation, individuals who were at the Capitol, their phone records were also searched uh, or attempted to be, but the person got a notice ahead of time saying, hey, we're going after your phone records. You've got 30 days to go to court and challenge it. And I did on behalf of a couple of them, and we won. So that's not even raising executive privilege. So here, uh, it's unfair for Donald Trump to be blindsided like this. Well, it's good that you point all that out. Now, how do courts usually handle draft tweets or more commonly draft emails as evidence? Because only the tweets that he actually sent out represent the message that Trump wanted his followers to receive, not the ones he didn't send. Well, that's a good point. I mean, uh, this search warrant was very uh, wide ranging going after draft tweets. Uh, tweets. I think what the prosecutors try to do is seeing what was in uh, President Trump's mind. What was he thinking about? And, and therefore try to 
use that against him, even though, as you said, only what was actually sent was was the actual intent of the president at the time. So if they are allowed to access these Twitter data, which according to some sources show that they already have, are they going to be able to yeah. use that as admissible evidence in the case? Yeah, they, they do already have this. There's some uh, 32 uh, direct messages that they have, and uh, they'll, they'll try to admit it to evidence. Uh, part of this would be a challenge by Trump uh, and his attorneys to exclude this, and we'll have another round of litigation. But I'm afraid that the cat is out of the bag, so to speak, and they'll try to use this evidence to show President Trump's intent of uh, what, uh, what he intended on January 6th. Okay, so Paul, do you expect any of this to go to the Supreme Court surrounding the non-disclosure order? Uh, I certainly do, and, and I hope they do. Uh, so now, at this point, uh, both Twitter uh, and and Trump have a right to go to the Supreme Court from this denial of rehearing on bond. Uh, they have some uh, 45 days to do so, uh, and of course, the Supreme Court can d decide whether to take it or not. They're not required to. But I think since this is an important issue, as the four judges stated, I think you'll get it at least all you need is four votes of the nine justices to say, yes, let's hear this case. It's that important. And I think they will take it. Well, thank you so much for weighing in on this. Paul Kaminar, lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Thank you. Federal prosecutors are pushing back against Hunter Biden's claims that he was indicted under pressure from Republicans. They're asking the judge to reject the first son's efforts to have gun charges dismissed. Prosecutors revealed new details yesterday to support the argument that charges were brought because the evidence is overwhelming, not because of political bias. And today's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Special counsel David Weiss revealed new details of drug addiction in Tuesday's 52-page court filing. The filing says investigators found cocaine residue on the president's son's leather gun pouch. Prosecutors wrote an FBI chemist made that determination after it was pulled from the state police vault last year. Weiss also publicly released a photo of the gun for the first time that the younger Biden is accused of illegally buying and owning in 2018, a Colt Cobra 38 revolver. The first son asked the judge Monday to throw out the three gun-related felony charges against him. His lawyers claim they were only filed because Weiss bowed to GOP pressure as the 2024 campaign got underway. They argue Weiss only abandoned a prior plea deal under public pressure from former President Trump, along with congressional Republicans and conservatives inside the DOJ. Weiss rejected the arguments, labeling them a conspiracy theory and simply not credible. Prosecutors wrote the defendant is, quote, left with the inconvenient truth of trying to explain how this could happen during the Biden administration. It said it suggests evil motives are lurking deep within the Justice Department, adding the theories of fiction designed for a Hollywood script. The DOJ also said in its filing Hunter Biden cannot rely on his Second Amendment right to a firearm to avoid prosecution, alleging he posed a threat to public safety. The court filing includes texts between the younger Biden and former girlfriend, where he said he was sleeping on a car smoking crack and waiting for a dealer named Mookie. Prosecutors also point to what they call incriminating statements from Hunter Biden's 2021 memoir. He's pleaded not guilty to charges accusing him of lying on a federal gun form. In addition to gun charges, the president's son is also facing a separate tax indictment, which he pleaded not guilty to last week. The filing also appears to have acknowledgement from Weiss's team that an infamous laptop left at a computer store belonged to Hunter Biden. It states it examined the defendant's Apple MacBook Pro, then handed it to the defense as part of required evidence productions before trial, an indication the laptop is likely to come into play when the case comes before a jury. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. We reached out to Hunter Biden's attorney and the DOJ for comment. We will let you know once we hear back, of course. And the Senate has advanced a short-term funding extension. The procedural vote yesterday was 68 to 13. The measure gives lawmakers until March to reach an agreement on an appropriations bill for the year. The resolution will extend government funding for the next 40 days. It marks the third time Congress will kick the can down the road on government funding during this fiscal year. But the Senate still has to reach a time agreement to schedule a final passage vote before it 
Good Friday deadline. An objection from any senator could delay that process. The House will have to take it up later this week, and it's going to meet with pushback from House Republicans. House Speaker Mike Johnson will likely have no choice but to rely on Democrats to get it over the finish line. That's a move that cost former Speaker McCarthy his job. And continuing with funding negotiations, President Biden has invited the top four congressional leaders and other lawmakers to the White House today. This as lawmakers have struggled to reach an agreement on aid for the Ukraine war. Republicans have insisted on pairing it with their demands for securing the southern border. A bipartisan group of negotiators in the Senate has been working for weeks. They're trying to find an agreement that would provide wartime money for Ukraine and Israel, and also include a new border policy that is strong enough to satisfy Republicans in both chambers. The talks appeared to slow last week, as senators said significant disagreements remained. Meanwhile, the drowning deaths of three migrants have brought new urgency to an extraordinary showdown between the Biden administration and Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott. Texas has seized a city park in a major corridor for illegal crossings and denied entry to Border Patrol agents. Senator Chuck Grassley has been hospitalized. Representatives for the 90-year-old Iowa Republican say he is being treated for an infection. He's receiving antibiotic infusions and is in good spirits. Senator Grassley plans to return to work as soon as he's cleared by doctors. He's the longest serving Republican in U.S. Senate history, having held an Iowa Senate seat since 1981. Shifting to the weather, people battled the elements in another day of brutal cold and dangerous wind chills yesterday. NTD's Daniel Monahan has their stories from across the country. The National Weather Service says about 150 million Americans are under a wind chill warning or advisory. As an Arctic air mass spills south and eastward across the U.S. In Kentucky, a dramatic rescue of campers. Four college students were stranded atop Courthouse Rock in the Red River Gorge area on Monday due to a winter storm. The search and rescue said it was one of the most dangerous rescues ever attempted in the gorge. In Massachusetts, a snow-covered road led to this vehicle skidding out of control and flipping over on Tuesday. Not just people face challenges from the frigid winter weather. Animals like this dog can also get into trouble. This Utah firefighter is plunging into the water to save the trapped canine. Bob the dog doesn't realize his good fortune and puts up a struggle. But it all ends well, and Bob does his dog water shake, a sign he should come out of this just fine. Philadelphia got its first significant snowfall in almost two years. Isaiah Stout is enjoying the winter fun with his young daughter, making a snowman. My daughter's four. She doesn't remember the snow, so this is her first time actually checking it out. Stout says his kids lost their minds when they woke up and saw snow all over the ground. We didn't have any snow stuff, so we had to run a target. It was really crazy in here. Got their snow suits and their snow boots, and then now they're excited. So this is cool, really cool. Dan Westcott says the snow is nice and makes things quieter. I was hoping for more. I could have done with a snow day. <laughs> Dangerously cold wind chills are continuing to affect much of the Rockies, Great Plains, and Midwest, with wind chills below minus 30 degrees in many parts of the central U.S. Tuesday. Chicago resident Richard Weinberg says his two sweaters, made in Peru, are keeping him toasty. Plus, it's probably the most beautiful time in Chicago ever. This is very unique. For some, the frigid weather is just a state of mind an opportunity to be extraordinary. Animals across the nation were teaching people that your outlook on the winter weather is everything. Like Luna the polar bear here, rejoicing in the fluffy winter carpet, or this otter enjoying a nighttime dance and tumble, and this spirited golden doodle Freya putting on a show in the snowy grass. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. 
Up next, the U.S. sends a top official to Qatar to discuss a possible Hamas hostage release. And more on an expected move to put Iran-backed Houthis back on the list of foreign terrorist organizations. A former hostage haunted by the final words of her captive husband. Hear her painful account as a Hamas prisoner. The U.S. strikes back at Houthi targets following more chaos in the Red Sea and more on the U.S. Navy's interception of Iranian weapons bound for Yemen after the break. Thank you for staying with us. The White House says it sent a top National Security Council official to Qatar to help negotiate a hostage deal between Israel and the Hamas terrorist group. NSC spokesman John Kirby called talks about a possible deal very serious and intensive. Kirby says the administration is hopeful the talks bear fruit and bear fruit soon. Qatar and France have brokered a deal with Israel and Hamas to deliver medicine to around 45 hostages. That's in return for humanitarian and medical aid to civilians in Gaza. France still has three nationals held in Gaza. Aid is set to leave Qatar for Egypt today, then to Gaza through the Rafah border crossing. There are 107 hostages thought to still be alive. And an Israeli woman and her family were taken hostage by terrorists during the October 7th Hamas invasion. She and her three-year-old twins have been released. But her husband remains captive, and now she recounts the horrors her family faced. Here's the story. A lot of the times the girl was just, were just crying. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Sharon Alana Cunio, her husband David, and their three-year-old twins were among over 200 hostages taken by Hamas terrorists on October 7th. Mrs. Cunio and her daughters have been released, and now she's providing a rare glimpse into the terrifying ordeal of being a hostage. It started with a Hamas attack on their kibbutz. I started to lose um, conscious, and at that point, Danielle told me she shook me and said, let's open the window and get out. It's much better off that they shoot us and that there will be no pain, no suffering, instead of watching all of us choke up to death in here with the girls. After the neighborhood where she was being held was bombed, Hamas moved her family to a hospital. After about nine days, the house next to us was bombed and they decided to move us because all the walls came falling, like tumbling down on us with glasses and everything. So they brought in an ambulance, disguised David as a corp, covered him with a white sheet, put me in um, uh, traditional Arab clothes, put Yuli in my hands with a sheet over her and told me to look down and put us inside the ambulance, which took us to the hospital in Khan Yunus, which we stayed there uh, up until the end. The food they were given was barely fit for human consumption. We only got pita bread, which was moldy, and this uh, box of uh, feta cheese, which is supposed to be in a fridge, but we can't, so we just like opened it and ate it. We all had diarrhea and throwing up. The family is recovering from their harrowing ordeal now that they are safe, but her husband is one of the over 100 hostages still being held by Hamas. I cry all day. I just sit around and cry all day, watching new videos in all kind of groups, looking for any information about him, watching his pictures on my phone and hearing his voice messages. The nightmare continues until her husband is freed and she can't stop thinking about his last words to her as the family embraced for a final time in captivity. But he told me, fight for me, don't give up. Please yell what I can't yell. Please help me to get out. And he told me, I'm scared as hell. This was the last sentence, I'm scared as hell. 
The U.S. could soon be putting the Iran-backed Houthis back on the list of foreign terrorist organizations. Anonymous sources told the Associated Press about the expected move. An unnamed State Department official confirmed it with CBS News. The Trump administration designated Houthis as a terrorist organization just before the former president left office. The Biden administration took the group off the list in 2021. That was for the impact the designation had on getting humanitarian aid to starving civilians in Yemen. The UN says war in Yemen killed over 370,000 people by the end of 2020. It estimates over 150,000 of those deaths were directly caused by the conflict, the rest from starvation and disease. The news comes as more chaos unfolds in the Red Sea. Washington is striking back, launching another strike against a Houthi missile facility yesterday. The strike destroyed four missiles that were posing a threat. This after three days in a row of Houthis firing at ships passing by. That's after the U.S. Navy intercepted its first batch of Iranian-made weapons bound for Yemen. Here's more on the rising tensions in the region. On Tuesday, the U.S. ordered another round of airstrikes against the Yemeni Houthis. They specifically targeted a cache of anti-ship missiles. This after the Iran-backed group claimed responsibility for a missile attack in the Red Sea, where a Greek-owned boat carrier was hit. No one was injured from the strike. The Houthis are now vowing to step up attacks in the region. The Yemeni armed forces will continue to prevent the navigation of Israeli ships or ships related to the Israeli enemy in both Arabian and Red Seas. Before this round of strikes was another bombing campaign spearheaded by the U.S. and the U.K., aiming to deter attacks by the Houthis. Since November, the Houthi forces have launched missile strikes on cargo ships in the Red Sea. The attack had forced some shipping companies to either avoid the trade route or pause operations. And meanwhile, a search and rescue is continuing after two U.S. Navy SEALs went missing off the coast of Somalia. According to the U.S. Central Command, both of them were involved in a secret operation that sees a boatload of Iranian-made weapons bound for Yemen. And two other countries have reportedly been targeted by Iran. In Pakistan, officials condemned Iran for the death of two Pakistani children after the regime said it launched an attack targeting a militant group called the Army of Justice. The group was founded in 2012 and it mostly operates across the border in Pakistan that have previously attacked Iranian security forces near the border region. Sam Wong, NTD News. And just a quick correction, the UN says war in Yemen killed over 370,000 people by the end of 2021 as opposed to 2020. We're bringing in Brent Sadler now for more on the situation in the Red Sea and the Houthis. He is a research fellow for Naval Warfare and Advanced Technology at the Center for National Security. Good morning, Brent. Good to see you. So the U.S. is continuing its strikes against the Houthis, as we have heard earlier in the show. What do you think is the U.S. strategy here? Because after the last attack, the Houthis just seem to hit back stronger. Yeah, I think there's an I'm, my best uh, estimate is there is a lack of a strategy. Uh, pretty much not just with the Houthis, but with how to deal with Iran's very aggressive actions since uh, instigating and pushing the Hamas organization to attack on 7 October. Uh, that being said, we're stuck now in a tit-a-tat where the U.S. military goes after the sites from which these missiles are launched and the boats are, are put to sea from to launch attacks into the Red Sea, and then the Houthis regroup and do another attack. So the question is now, are we going to continue in an attrition battle with the Houthis and the Iranians, or are we going to expand this and cut off the supply and continue on in trying to degrade their capacity, not just their capability, but their capacity to continue these attacks into the future? Hmm. So some say that attacks actually strengthens the Houthis' position, though. What's your take on that? Well, I don't think it strengthens or weakens the Houthis' position. They've been locked in a, in a years-long war a civil war as well as uh, going and working against UN mandates, their only real supporter is the regime in Tehran. And so by making attacks against Israel and using the pretext of that as doing Iran's bidding by attacking shipping of the West, most notably, it really only serves Iran. It doesn't serve the Houthis, and the Houthis, quite frankly, don't have much to lose. Hmm. So in just a couple of seconds, where do you see this tit for tat, these tit-for-tat moves going? Well, I think eventually the Biden administration is going to be forced to realize a failed policy. We're already seeing some of that. 
uh, and they're going to have to start going after and isolating the Houthis by cutting off their air and sea connections back to Tehran so they can't continue to get restocked. That may, that may have to be a bit of an escalation if the Iranians try to press that blockade. All right, but again, there are UN mandates already in place. Right, understood. Thank you so much, Brent Sadler, for your insights today. Thank you. Coming up, OpenAI is looking to combat bias in their artificial intelligence, what this means for the battle against misinformation as we enter the 2024 election cycle. A merger between Spirit Airlines and JetBlue is blocked as Spirit struggles to stay afloat. We have updates with the host of NTD Business in just a moment. Good to have you back. We also have NTD Business host Don Ma with us now. We're discussing AI, OpenAI and how it aims to curb AI bias. Artificial Intelligence Lab OpenAI is forming a new team to create a democratic process. The goal is to shape how its AI software should be governed to address bias and other factors. So Don, tell us more about this. All right, so first of all, let me just mention this team. It's called the Collective Alignment. And uh, the focus here, as you mentioned just now, is to make the process of tackling bias uh, for chatbots, potentially like ChatGPT, uh, as democratic as possible. And the team said in a statement that uh, for them, it seems like it's important to uh, give the people an opportunity to provide input directly to them. Um, but you know, there are immediate challenges that they'll have to overcome. And one of them is that, uh, how do you make sure that real people, right, and not online bots are uh, giving inputs uh, to the team? So to ensure that only humans can vote, OpenAI uh, could potentially partner with WorldCoin. And what that is, uh, WorldCoin is a cryptocurrency uh, project founded by OpenAI CEO Sam Altman. And what it does is that it provides a way to tell the difference uh, between uh, humans and AI bots, uh, though the team hasn't said for sure that they're going to uh, work with them just yet. Uh, the, the new OpenAI team is act actively uh, looking to hire researchers and engineers to help along uh, with the process. And the team uh, will closely work with OpenAI's human data um, team as well, uh, among others. And, what this team does is that it builds infrastructure for collecting human input on the company's AI models. And you know, all, all this is amid concerns that uh, ChatGPT and other AI systems are, are inherently biased uh, to a certain degree. And uh, that is due to uh, the inputs uh, that uh, people have used uh, to shape the ChatGPT or other chatbots views. And uh, users have found actually examples already of uh, of the AI being, for example, racist or sexist and among mm. other things. Yeah, right, political bias is of course a huge topic now this year with the presidential election coming up. So how is the company tackling misinformation? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And there have been concerns for AI uh, to create deep fakes and uh, other pictures and misinformation, as you mentioned. Uh, so especially, uh, you know, as the 2024 election ramps up, ramps up uh, the concern is more pronounced. Uh, OpenAI on Monday actually declared that politicians and their campaigns are not allowed to use the company's AI tools. Uh, th that that restriction extends to impersonation as well, which is a major factor here. And OpenAI said in, in a post that under its policies, users may not create chatbots uh, posing as political candidates or government agencies and officials, uh, for example, uh, Secretary of State, uh, for instance. And the announcement shows how OpenAI is attempting to get ahead of the criticism, uh, which there have been some, uh, which uh, that artificial intelligence could undermine, undermine the democratic process uh, with computer-generated disinformation or misinformation, uh, which, by the way, has already been used uh, to this election cycle to disseminate, uh, you know, fake images, mm. and you know, this isn't just limited to OpenAI as well. Uh, their policies are echoing those implemented by other large tech platforms as well. Uh, you know, but it's a difficult thing to tackle because if something has the inherent ability 
to do bad things, there are going to be people out there in the world who will try to do that. So, you know, it's, it's not an easy task for them to tackle. Uh, but I think given enough time and resources, there could be a solution here. Yeah, and Don, this is hugely important, especially considering that a dean at the University of Chicago is saying that 2024 is going to see an AI-dominated election, while 2020 had a social media-dominated election. But what's happening with Spirit right now, Don? Yeah, big news happening on that front. Uh, Spirit Airlines is facing tough choices. A judge blocked its $3.8 billion deal with JetBlue Airways yesterday, and the low-cost carrier is struggling to return to profitability amid rising operating costs and supply chain problems. And airline analysts at AD Cohen says Spirit will likely look for another buyer, but that a more likely scenario is uh, actually Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing followed by liquidation. The airline has also been hit hard by a snag with its geared turbo fan engines. Uh, as a result, they grounded a number of planes last year, and that number is only expected to rise this year. Spirit's shares plunged 47% yesterday after the court's ruling, while JetBlue's shares gained about 5%. Wow, I mean, it's deemed as a win for the U.S. Uh, antitrust efforts, but 47 percent, geez. Yeah, that's right, right off a cliff. Yeah, it doesn't look good. All right, thank you so much, Don Ma, for giving us these updates, host of NTD Business. Thank you. Stick around. What do you get when you mix Volkswagen and artificial intelligence? The company says a better in-car experience. An AI expert on what this integration system can do. Think entertainment. Welcome back. In tech news, AI is basically everywhere now. Yes, and Volkswagen is saying it's the first automaker to use AI integration to boost the driving experience. Right, and they've partnered with auto innovator Serence to put this technology in their car's assistance. Now you can have a fun chit chat with ChatGPT as it helps you on your drive responding to a whole range of questions. Mm. And their cloud system is letting this update go to car, cars already on the road. Yeah, I wanted to find out more about what this system can do. So I spoke with Phil Siegel, who's an AI expert and founder of preparedness company Captors. Here's what he told me. Well, it's going to be uh, just like having your chat GPT while you're in the car. Obviously, uh, they don't want you to do anything that is uh, dangerous. Um, so. Uh, all of it will be voice activated. Um, uh, it will help with the tasks that you would normally use uh, in your car. Um, it will uh, uh, replace some of the, uh, maybe the, the chatter from the people in the car. So if you're talking about where you might wanna go for a restaurant, you might ask it uh, and give it uh, some parameters that you're looking for. Uh, and then, you know, the next thing you know, you might have some suggestions uh, that are said by voice um, that uh, you might consider. So it's not something that's complicated. It's going to be very much the same kind of usage that you would have in your home. So you would just say, yeah, I'm feeling pizza tonight. Can you take me there? And then it'll automatically come up with a list of pizza restaurants and navigate you there? Uh, I, yes, yes, it will do that for sure. Um, it should be a little more sophisticated than that in the sense of, um, unlike with Google search, where it would be very difficult for you to say, you know, give me the top, you know, the, the, the restaurants that have the most positive reviews uh, in your database. Um, you can ask Google that. It's not clear that you always get a, 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 the right answer for that. Um, you're going to be able to get you know, much more kind of rich information, I think, um, from a chatbot uh, experience. That is really impressive. And just for who this applies to, this is the MEB and MQB Evo models of Volkswagen has that IDA voice assistant. And so how can you use it for entertainment? Well, um, I'm sure the same kind of uh, things that you might use in your car, you might ask, uh, you know, at home, you might ask Alexa or Siri, to find a favorite album for you based on the preferences of the people in the car. Um, you could do the same type of thing um, with your chatbot in the car. Uh, it'll be a little more sophisticated because it'll use the chat GPT technology, but you have to be careful because you have to remember 
Sometimes these chatbots are not trained on recent data, uh, and so it will do a better job for uh, oldies or for you know more recent type of things, but not the most recent uh, types right. of music. Yeah, and some of those older chat GPT models have that cutoff date, whereas other services like Perplexity, they can get real-time information straight off the web, so it's pretty interesting. So the Serence Chat Pro, does it have any limitations in addition to that? Yeah, and to remember, what this really is is an integration mechanism. It is using um, some of its own technology, but also the chat GPT technology. Um, it's not you know, just a very simple thing uh, to connect a car to chat GPT, which is essentially in the cloud. And that's what this you know, Serent uh, technology really does. It's you know, very impressive, um, but it's more of an integration mechanism um, then it's certainly not your car, it's certainly not the chatbot, um, but it is uh, put uh, some very robust technology in place to be able to connect those two things so that you can have a better user experience while driving. That is a fascinating application of this technology. Phil Siegel, AI expert and founder of Captors, thank you for telling us all about this. Thank you. Up next, winter winds and dry air affecting your skin. We take a look at some tips to keep your skin hydrated and healthy during the cold season, so stay tuned. Welcome back. Dry air and cold winds can wreak havoc on your skin, but what can you do to protect yourself? To answer that question, I asked a licensed esthetician on her tips to keep your skin glowing this winter season. Joining me now for some tips on skincare is Cynthia Aguilar. She is a licensed esthetician with Natura Bisset. Good morning, Cynthia. It's really good to have you. So first, what's the biggest difference or change that people should make to their skincare routine once the weather gets cold and dry like that? Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. And to your point, I think the first thing that should change, of course, is the texture of the products you're using right? During the summer, you may want to go for lighter textures, maybe a gel, maybe a gel-like or fluid-like textures. And then you're going to go and change also the ingredients in your products. So for example, I would go for a thicker moisturizer and even your cleanser, if you think about it, maybe during summertime, you're gonna be using gels. During um, winter, you may wanna go for a cleanser that's a little bit um, almost like a balm or creamier. And for your moisturizer, you definitely wanna look out for thicker, heavier textures that are more emollient for your skin. Can you specifically touch on the ingredients that you mentioned? What type of ingredients should we look for on the packaging? So you want to look for ingredients like hyaluronic acid. Hyaluronic acid is the king of hydrating ingredients, but maybe you also want to look out for ingredients that are regenerating for the skin, like rosa muscata oil, maybe, um, that will really help out to moisturize and almost make or create a film on the surface on your skin that will lock in hydration as well. Oh, that's really interesting because I'm also interested in, you know, what kind of effect does winter, this type of winter weather actually have on people's skin? What happens during winter time, if you think about it, you're always changing from hot to cold, hot to cold, right? Because you go outside, it's freezing cold, but then you go inside and it's going to be nice and warm. So your, your skin is always going from hot to cold, hot, hot to cold, and all these extreme weather changes. So what happens is that your skin is going to dry out, one, but then of course it's going to get also more sensitive. If your skin starts to get sensitive, you will get signs like um, maybe irritation, redness, 
itchiness. And during the winter, if you don't take care of your skin, if you don't hydrate it and moisturize it properly, those signs um, and symptoms are only going to get worse. Very interesting. So lastly, before we wrap this up, what about, you know, general lifestyle changes or anything else sh that we should look for maybe or change in our lives beyond just skincare? Or, you know, what, what would you recommend? I mean, drinking water is going to be key during this time, even though I know when it's cold, you're not like really wanting a glass of water or two or three or four, but it, it is really important to keep um, your skin and your body hydrated from the inside. I would um, keep caffeinated drinks at a, at a low percentage, mm -hmm. but drink more water. And maybe if you can incorporate electrolytes into your um, habits, that would be amazing. Awesome. Electrolytes and water. Thank you so much, Cynthia Aguilar. I really appreciated those, those tips today. Thank you so much for having me again. Great tips. Yeah, and I, I moisturize a bit and put on the chapstick. And you know, they say actually that the winter months will cause less moisture in the skin and less lipids, those fatty acids, oh. which can lead to irritation and dryness too. Yeah, a lot of new things that I learned here, so I really appreciated that interview. Yeah, and one more thing is that in the winter we turn up the heater and that causes humidity to go down, so maybe we need a humidifier. Yeah, that's right. I definitely got myself one the first thing. All right, uh, we will head to a break really quickly and we'll be back in just one minute. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump yesterday in New Hampshire after securing a key win in Iowa. How's the next primary race looking? And could Nikki Haley surge ahead? Iris Tau reports. The New York Court of Appeals dismisses Trump's legal team's appeals to remove a gag order on the former president. We look at the significance of the court's decision. Cocaine residue found on Hunter Biden's gun pouch. Prosecutors reject claims of political bias, calling strength of evidence overwhelming. Plus, find out how an infamous laptop could come into play. The U.S. sends a top official to Qatar to discuss a possible Hamas hostage release and more on an expected move to put Iran-backed Houthis back on the list of foreign terrorist organizations. The Senate advances a short-term funding bill, but still needs to reach an agreement for a final passage vote. We take a look at what's at stake with the funding deadline fast approaching. Record-setting Arctic cold will continue today for many parts of the country. We take a look at how both man and beast are coping. Record-breaking cold in parts of Canada. See footage of how a polar vortex is freezing everyday items. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Wednesday, January 17th. And hey, maybe if you're in Canada, you mix a little cream and sugar together, you can make ice cream just throwing it up in the air. Oh, with, with what? With air? Yeah, just that cold air freezes oh, like that. Oh, nice. All right. Um, but 
today's top news, first of all, of course, we have some more serious news to get to, but stay to the end to uh, see that what Kevin was talking about here. Uh, top news is former President Trump yesterday toggling between the courtroom and the campaign trail after securing a key victory in Iowa. His competitors now vying for another shot in New Hampshire. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has the latest on Trump's campaign. Just one day after winning by a historic margin here in Iowa, former President Trump is already campaigning in New Hampshire. The largest margin of victory in GOP history. Is that good? If you think that it was easy to get here tonight, you are wrong. That was. He's there after spending most of the day at a courtroom in New York, where a jury there will decide whether he has to pay former magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll for defamation over denying her allegations about sexual harassment. Trump has denied any wrongdoing in that case and has went on to say that he doesn't even know who Carroll is. Trump went on a posting spree on True Social on Tuesday saying this is another witch hunt. That's especially as it comes right after the Iowa caucus on Monday and right before the New Hampshire primary set for next Tuesday. Meanwhile, in New Hampshire, recent polling has shown that Nikki Haley has been eating into Trump's lead there. But Trump won by over 50 percent of support here in Iowa on Monday, leading both Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley by over 30 points. So another potential key victory in New Hampshire could really help Trump here by knocking out the competition, which could help explain why Trump is campaigning New Hampshire for the rest of the week. Meanwhile, his competitors are not letting up either. Here's what they were saying on Tuesday. Watch. If Donald Trump is the nominee, the election will revolve around all these legal issues, his trials. Uh, we're going to lose if that's the decision that voters are making. I'm going after Trump. We can't go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. Involve Vivek Ramaswamy, who dropped out of the race on Monday after the Iowa caucus and went on to endorse Trump, appeared with Trump at Trump's rally in New Hampshire on Tuesday. And I told him that I would endorse Donald J. Trump for president of the United States and do everything in my power to lead us to victory in this war. He has a big, beautiful, bright future ahead. Ramaswamy originally planned a lot of events for himself in New Hampshire, but these events are all gone now on his website after he dropped out. Back to you. Former Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is calling on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley to drop their campaigns and unite the party behind Trump. Speaking on Fox News, Ramaswamy stated that stepping aside would be a service to the country and the party. And Senator Ted Cruz officially endorsed former President Trump last night. The move comes after the former president's dominant victory at the Iowa caucuses. Cruz wrote on X that he's proud to endorse Trump for president. The senator from Texas urged people to unite against President Biden and what he called the Democrats' agenda while asking for donations. This marks Cruz's third endorsement of Trump in the presidential primaries. All eyes on New Hampshire as the nation's first primary is on the way. Former President Trump will be going into this primary with a solid lead, but it's also a chance for candidates Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis to make an impression. Let's take a look at what they need to focus on to win in New England. After former President Trump's win in Iowa's caucuses, the race for the Republican presidential nomination turns to New Hampshire. Here, candidates will take part in the first GOP primary of the 2024 campaign. Former President Trump, Governor Ron DeSantis, and Nikki Haley are hoping to capitalize on their performances in Iowa. Dante Scala, a political science professor at the University of New Hampshire, says voters in the state will be different. Right, Iowa, lots of evangelicals, lots of religious conservatives. New Hampshire, much less religious, not coincidentally, much more socially moderate. He expects candidates to shift focus from social issues like abortion to issues that will resonate with Republicans in the state. What you'll hear a lot of over the next several days are fiscal issues, taxes, uh, deficits. Uh, you'll hear about the border. Immigration will be a key issue that is discussed over and over again. 
Trump will be going into New Hampshire, close on the heels of a resounding victory. His tactics, Professor Scala says, are unlikely to change. You have a theory of how to win. Uh, and you have tactics that go along with that theory. This strategy, he says, will involve getting on the local news and trying to keep a lid on Nikki Haley. The other candidates will have to cater their tactics to the new set of voters. There's this sense of inevitability around Donald Trump. And what Nikki Haley has to do over the next seven days is puncture that feeling of inevitability. He expects her to go hard in New Hampshire. She's going to double down on absolutely everything because New Hampshire is her last chance to make a good first impression on the rest of the country. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will have to work hard to appeal to New Hampshire voters after putting so much of his time into Iowa. The problem for Ron DeSantis right now is that he really hasn't had a message that he's been transmitting to New Hampshire voters now for a good couple of months. With Vivek Ramaswamy dropping out after Iowa, Trump is currently in the lead with 20 delegates. Governor DeSantis has nine, and Nikki Haley has eight. The New Hampshire primary takes place on January 23rd. And on to an update on former President Trump's election case. Twitter tried to get permission to let Trump know special counsel Jack Smith was attempting to access his data, so they appealed to the full court. But the federal appeals court said yesterday it won't get involved. Earlier I spoke with Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center, for an update on former President Trump's election case. The cat's out of the bag. President Trump knows that Jack Smith's trying to go after his Twitter data. Why does X need to go around this non-disclosure order? Well, X uh, argued uh, it had a First Amendment right to tell its customer that, hey, uh, the FBI, Jack Smith's coming to get your, your data. And what's really amazing about this is that this information was stored with the National Archives. And normally what happens when the government or anybody who wants to get information from the National Archives, you apply to the National Archives and the president or the ex-president gets 30 days to challenge that in court. This is astounding that here in America, not only do you have uh, uh, prosecutors getting your data, but they're not even following the legal procedure. So, uh, you know, this is really... Uh, uh, a illegal uh, attempt on the part of, of Jack Smith. Paul, certainly huge ramifications for presidential executive privilege here. The four sure. judges, they did not issue a dissent, but they had an opinion. And in that, they were actually pointing out that this may set the precedent where a sitting president could have their records looked up in secret. So what precedent does this set here? Yeah, no, uh, that's exactly right. Uh, the four uh, judges did note that this sets a very dangerous president, not only for ex-presidents, but for sitting presidents as well. Uh, can you imagine uh, that uh, any president in office, all of a sudden, uh, his, his uh, tweets and uh, phone records are being uh, subpoenaed, uh, uh, or search warrant, rather, by, by the prosecutors, and they don't know about it? I mean, this is astounding. Thank you so much for weighing in on this. Paul Kaminar, lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Thank you. Former President Trump's legal team is requesting access to President Biden's White House records. Trump's attorneys are looking to build a defense against allegations that Trump mishandled sensitive national security records after leaving office. Trump's team also asked for documents from the National Security Council and the White House Counsel's Office. The lawyers accused Special Counsel Jack Smith and his team of, quote, partisan election interference for not giving them what could be evidence as he could be used in the case. If the, judges gr if the judge grants access to the records, Trump's team would be aiming for sweeping access to Biden's core advisors and their communications. Trump's attorneys also asked for access to communications between the Biden administration and the Fulton County District Attorney's Office in Georgia. And federal prosecutors are pushing back against Hunter Biden's claims that he was indicted under pressure from Republicans. Prosecutors revealed new details yesterday to support the argument that charges were brought because the evidence is overwhelming, not because of political bias. 
NTD's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. Special counsel David Weiss revealed new details of drug addiction in Tuesday's 52-page court filing. The filing says investigators found cocaine residue on the president's son's leather gun pouch. Prosecutors wrote an FBI chemist made that determination after it was pulled from the state police vault last year. Weiss also publicly released a photo of the gun for the first time that the younger Biden is accused of illegally buying and owning in 2018, a Colt Cobra 38 revolver. The first son asked the judge Monday to throw out the three gun-related felony charges against him. His lawyers claim they were only filed because Weiss bowed to GOP pressure as the 2024 campaign got underway. They argue Weiss only abandoned a prior plea deal under public pressure from former President Trump, along with congressional Republicans and conservatives inside the DOJ. Weiss rejected the arguments, labeling them a conspiracy theory and simply not credible. Prosecutors wrote the defendant is, quote, left with the inconvenient truth of trying to explain how this could happen during the Biden administration. Prosecutors also point to what they call incriminating statements from Hunter Biden's 2021 memoir. He's pleaded not guilty to charges accusing him of lying on a federal gun form. The filing also appears to have acknowledgement from Weiss's team that an infamous laptop left at a computer store belonged to Hunter Biden. It states it examined the defendant's Apple MacBook Pro, then handed it to the defense as part of required evidence productions before trial, an indication the laptop is likely to come into play when the case comes before a jury. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Just ahead, the Senate advances a short-term funding bill but still needs to reach an agreement for final passage vote. We take a look at what's at stake with the funding deadline fast approaching. College students stranded atop a rock in Kentucky. A firefighter tries to save a dog trapped in the water of a frozen pond. See the latest as cold weather wreaks havoc across the country. And a polar vortex brings record-breaking cold to parts of Canada, and it's doing some strange things to everyday household items. See this video. Good to have you back. More chaos unfolds in the Red Sea. Washington is striking back, launching another strike against a Houthi missile facility yesterday. The strike destroyed four missiles that were posing a threat. This after three days in a row of Houthis firing at ships passing by. They specifically targeted a cache of anti-ship missiles. This after the Iran-backed group claimed responsibility for a missile attack in the Red Sea where a Greek-owned bulk carrier was hit. No one was injured from the strike. The Houthis are now vowing to step up attacks in the region. Before this round of strikes was another bombing campaign spearheaded by the U.S. and the U.K., aiming to deter attacks by the Houthis. And the White House says it sent a top National Security Council official to Qatar to help negotiate a hostage deal between Israel and the Hamas terrorist group. NSC spokesman John Kirby called talks about a possible deal very serious and intensive. Kirby says the administration is hopeful the talks bear fruit and bear fruit soon. Qatar and France have brokered a deal with Israel and Hamas to deliver medicine to around 45 hostages. That's in return for humanitarian and medical aid to civilians in Gaza. France still has three nationals held in Gaza. Aid is set to leave Qatar for Egypt today, then into Gaza through the Rafah border crossing. There are 107 hostages thought to be still alive. The U.S. Senate has rejected a measure to force a human rights report on Israel. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders introduced the resolution. It would have ordered the State Department to evaluate whether Israel committed human rights violations during its war with Hamas. Sanders said while Israel has the right to defend itself and go to war with Hamas, it doesn't have the right to go to war against the Palestinian people. Senator Elizabeth Warren said the Senate has a role in overseeing U.S. military involvement overseas. Others who rejected the resolution said now is not the time to condemn Israel because that would embolden Israel's enemies, including Hamas. The resolution was voted down yesterday 72 to 11. 
The Senate has advanced a short-term funding extension. The procedural vote yesterday was 68 to 13. The measure gives lawmakers until March to reach an agreement on an appropriations bill for the year. The resolution will extend government funding for the next 40 days. It marks the third time Congress will kick the can down the road on government funding during this fiscal year. But the Senate still has to reach a time agreement to schedule a final passage vote before our Friday deadline. Objection from any senator could delay that process. The House will have to take it up later this week, and it's going to meet with pushback from House Republicans. House Speaker Mike Johnson will likely have no choice but to rely on Democrat to, Democrats to get it over the finish line. That's a move that co cost former Speaker McCarthy his job. And President Biden is expected to meet with top four congressional leaders at the White House today to discuss the Israel-Ukraine aid. Moving on, people battled the elements in another day of brutal cold and dangerous wind chills yesterday. NTD's Daniel Monahan has their stories from across the country. The National Weather Service says about 150 million Americans are under a wind chill warning or advisory as an Arctic air mass spills south and eastward across the U.S. In Kentucky, a dramatic rescue of campers. Four college students were stranded atop Courthouse Rock in the Red River Gorge area on Monday due to a winter storm. The search and rescue said it was one of the most dangerous rescues ever attempted in the gorge. In Massachusetts, a snow-covered road led to this vehicle skidding out of control and flipping over on Tuesday. Not just people face challenges from the frigid winter weather. Animals like this dog can also get into trouble. This Utah firefighter is plunging into the water to save the trapped canine. Bob the dog doesn't realize his good fortune and puts up a struggle. But it all ends well, and Bob does his dog water shake, a sign he should come out of this just fine. Philadelphia got its first significant snowfall in almost two years. Isaiah Stout is enjoying the winter fun with his young daughter, making a snowman. My daughter's four. She doesn't remember the snow, so this is her first time actually checking it out. Stout says his kids lost their minds when they woke up and saw snow all over the ground. We didn't have any snow stuff, so we had to run a Target. It was really crazy in here. Got their snow suits and their snow boots. And then now they're excited, so this is cool. Really cool. Dan Westcott says the snow is nice and makes things quieter. I was hoping for more. I could have done with a snow day. <laughs> Dangerously cold wind chills are continuing to affect much of the Rockies, Great Plains, and Midwest, with wind chills below minus 30 degrees in many parts of the central U.S. Tuesday. Chicago resident Richard Weinberg says his two sweaters, made in Peru, are keeping him toasty. Plus, it's probably the most beautiful time in Chicago ever. This is very unique. For some, the frigid weather is just a state of mind an opportunity to be extraordinary. Animals across the nation were teaching people that your outlook on the winter weather is everything. Like Luna the polar bear here, rejoicing in the fluffy winter carpet. Or this otter enjoying a nighttime dance and tumble. And this spirited golden doodle Freya putting on a show in the snowy grass. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And continuing with the frosty weather, a polar vortex has brought recording breaking cold to parts of Canada. Video shows everyday items completely frozen amid the extreme icy temperatures in Alberta. And here a man can be seen throwing hot water into the air. The minus 45 degree temperature turns it into steam. The effects of cold on different food items can also be observed. The minus 31 degree temperature here makes quick work of a cracked egg over a frying pan. The brutal cold also froze these ramen noodles and chopsticks in midair with a bone chilling temperature of minus 40. And remember that temperature, minus 40, we'll talk about that. And this frozen toilet paper could pass for a work of modern art in some galleries these days. The temperature, a frigid minus 30 degrees. Wow.
That's incredible. To, to be honest, yeah, that that goes. I think all of it goes for modern art. To be honest, it looks pretty impressive. Yeah, and the minus forty degrees Celsius is also minus forty degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, they just they meet right at that point. That's very fascinating because I go with Celsius, so that's good to know. And I still haven't quite figured out the the conversion there, but I'll get there. Minus 40, easy math, but it means get out the wool socks. Okay, got it. All right, uh, we have to wrap up our show here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our news today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Thanks for watching, I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.